welcome to the Remain Faithful podcast. My name is Hannah and I'm your host. On today's episode, we will be discussing the power of crumbs. Taken from Matthew 15 verses 21 through 28, we will look at the overflow of the Lord's power and how it can impact our lives. Thank you for tuning in today and let's get started. episode of the Remain Faithful podcast. If this is your first time here, I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's really a joy to have you on the show today here with me. Today we're going to be talking about a passage in Matthew, specifically Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28. I decided to write a podcast about this specific passage in Matthew because a little fun fact about me, Matthew in the Bible is one of my favorite things to read. You know when you go to a hotel room and it's late at night and it's somewhere that you've never been and you're trying to find a place to plug in your phone and you wander around around a little bit and you know you try to use an outlet it doesn't work or you fight with your sibling over which one of you is going to get the outlet on the dresser. My sister and I do that sometimes. Um, And then you finally, you're wandering around in the dark and you find a plug-in for your phone and you can go to sleep. Well, for me, the place where I always dock myself in scripture, if I just need some sort of refreshment or I'm not on a specific Bible reading plan or I just need to be encouraged, I always read Matthew. And this happened the other day. It's just where I immediately go to if I need to be encouraged and need to hear the word of the Lord. So I was reading Matthew chapter 15 just for my own personal quiet time. And when I came to verse 21 through verse 28, I was very startled. And my initial read of the passage gave me a very strange feeling about it. I was contemplating why such a story was included in my Bible and what that meant for me in terms of my relationship with the Lord. And we'll get into all of that, of course, but it wasn't something that was easy for me to comprehend right off the bat. And I have a quote here by A.W. Pink. He's a really cool author. And it says, no verse of scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. And I think that is true if you are struggling to understand something in the Bible. It's true if you are easily comprehending the word. It's true no matter what age you are, no matter what walk of life you're in, what spot you're in with your walk with the Lord. If you are lazy, you're not going to get as much out of the Bible as you would if you dig down and you really search for meaning. And so I was confused and I was inquisitive. And so I started buckling down in this, these couple verses and I found some absolutely miraculous truth that I would really like to share with you guys. So with all of that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to begin by reading the first two verses in this passage. It says, When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Alrighty, so the there that is mentioned in the first sentence is meaning Galilee. Tyre from Galilee was 35 miles away, and Sidon was 60 miles away. They were both towards the north of Galilee. So if you think about the geography of Israel, Galilee is in the north, 
and Jerusalem is further south. Tyre and Sidon are further north than Galilee and they are situated on the coastline. I'm providing this geographical information for reasons that will become clear later. And another additional thing that is important for this passage is to note that Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities. The Phoenicians were descendants of the biblical Canaanites and if you are familiar with the Canaanites, you recognize that they are one of the seven enemy tribes of Israel. However, if you're not familiar with the Canaanites, I'll make a couple of points. If you remember to the very beginning of the Bible in the earliest part of Genesis, the Lord calls Abraham, who at that time is still Abram, to travel to a land called Canaan. The people who were the Canaanites are the individuals who were inhabiting that land before the arrival of Abraham. Canaan is west of the Jordan River, and the Jordan River essentially runs straight down the middle of Israel. But the story of the Canaanites pushes back even further than Abraham. Noah, you know, Noah's Ark, he had a son. His youngest son was named Ham. And there is a story in Genesis 9 where Noah and his family have landed after the flood and the boat is now safely docked on land. And Noah becomes drunk and he goes into his tent and he uncovers himself. Ham goes into the tent as well and sees his father's nakedness. And this act of disrespect on Ham's part essentially curses the Canaanites because Ham's youngest son would later become the patriarch for this people group. I want to briefly point out the rationale behind why Ham seeing his father naked was such a big deal. If you look at verse 22 in Genesis 9, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. If you look at the Hebrew meaning of the word told, it directly translates into meaning he told them with delight. So he was mocking his father. And that's the reason why this transgression was more serious than him just walking inside his dad's tent. But this is not a podcast about Genesis 9, so we'll move on. These individuals were a threat to the Israelites for the entirety of the time that they were in existence. They were definitely pagan and they practiced a lot of things that were forbidden to the Israelites that threatened their purity as a nation state. This passage in Matthew is paralleled with another passage from Mark chapter 7 verses 24 through 29. And in that section of text, we learn that this woman was a Syrophoenician. So she was from Syria. I brought up the biblical geographical location of Tyre and Sidon because Syria was even further north as a Roman province. First and foremost, this woman, she was a Canaanite, she was a woman, and she was a foreigner. So she had a lot of different statuses as an individual that were not necessarily high prestigious places to be in the biblical society. When I was thinking about this woman's identity as, you know, a woman, a Canaanite, and a foreigner in this region, one thing that immediately came to my mind was the concept of intersectionality. If you're not familiar with the concept of intersectionality, don't worry, it's not a biblical thing, it's a sociological thing. And it is a term that was coined in 1989 by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw. Miriam Webster defines intersectionality as the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, classism, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially if the experience of marginalized individual, people, or groups. In more layman's terms, intersectionality is the idea that there are a lot of people who are in minority groups for several different reasons. We see this woman, we see her as a woman, 
and a Canaanite, and so that puts her in a certain class of sex and a certain class of race, as well as someone who is a traveler to that region. And so all of these different points of her identity cross, and where they cross is what defines the term intersectionality. It's the idea that discrimination can often be compounding. If, you, if she was just a woman, that would be one situation, but she is a woman and a Canaanite, and if those were the only two characteristics about her, that would be one situation. But the fact that she has three minority identities in this region is really significant. Essentially what I'm saying is if there was a totem pole, she would be at the absolute bottom. All right, so we've unpacked the region where we are and the identity of this woman, and then we arrive at one of the most miraculous phrases said in this passage. This woman, she runs up to Jesus and she cries out, Lord, son of David. This is remarkable. This declaration is so important in the context of this passage, and there are several reasons why. First and foremost, the prophets had announced that the Messiah would come by lineage of David. We see the evidence of this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and Isaiah 11, 1. And so this woman recognizes that Jesus is the son of David, but we don't have any idea how she knows. If she has heard way of Jesus by his miracles that the information of his travels to her region, if she has potentially had an encounter with him in the past, been in the crowd, if she um, knows somebody who has encountered Jesus at this point, we have no idea how she knows. But this woman is very quick to recognize the Lord as the son of David. This is even more significant when you compound it with the idea that the disciples themselves, the people who were constantly with Jesus, were very slow in recognizing him. At this point in chapter 15, one of the only times prior to this that the disciples had recognized the Lord's divinity was in Matthew 14, 32. This was when Peter went out and walked on the water with Jesus. And the disciples said, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Further than that, Peter doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah until Matthew 16, 16. That verse says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Essentially, the disciples, who were constantly with Jesus, still had a hard time recognizing and fully grasping the idea that he was the son of David, that he was the Messiah. But this woman, she wastes no time. She knows immediately. And again, we have no idea how she knows, but she knows. If you read this account in Mark, Verse 24 says, He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. He could not be hidden, and I think that is so beautiful, so characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when he was trying to remain unseen, this was not possible for an individual of his power and his glory. So we see this remarkable declaration of this woman identifying Jesus for who he is and giving him proper title, even when the people closest to him were sometimes not as rapid to understand or comprehend who he truly was. We move into verse 23 and it reads, Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. In the very beginning of this podcast, I said I was reading this and it startled me and it made me very uncomfortable. And this is the reason why I experienced that discomfort. Jesus being silent in this moment can be interpreted a lot of ways. And there's truly only one way to interpret it if you want to get the meaning correct. It's really easy to read into this verse, verse 23, and interpret the meaning being that Jesus didn't speak to her because he didn't want to. But that's not the case. This silence does not incriminate Jesus in any way. It demonstrates the method by which he would test her faith in this moment. I like to think of this as like that 10 seconds of classic teacher silence. You know, when a teacher in a class says, does anyone have any questions? And then they wait, and then they wait some more, and then they keep waiting, and it feels like an eternity. And then someone finally pops in and asks a question because the silence gets really uncomfortable for some individuals. Furthering that, we can interpret that Jesus' silence was, no doubt, in effort to see if she would persevere in her request. He waited to see what she would do next, if she would continue to press in, if she would continue to lean into him and make this request. And to everyone listening, I want you to hear that he does this to us as well. If the Lord desires to test our faith, one of the ways by which he will choose to do so, as evidenced in this passage, is remain silent and to wait to see if we will continue to pursue him and approach him. So if you are trying to get a word from God, if you are struggling in something and you are feeling like he is being unresponsive, don't interpret that silence as him not being interested in your issue. Interpret it as him looking for you to press in even deeper, persevere even further than you already have. So not only does Jesus say nothing, the disciples also want her gone. They say, send her away because she's crying out after us. There's three possibilities for what this meaning can be interpreted as. One, send her away because she's bothering us. Two, Lord, just do it. Heal her. We know you can. Or three, send her away because she is a Gentile. A Gentile is essentially a person who is anything but a Jew. This woman, as we have identified, is a Canaanite, and she is from a different region. She's a foreigner, and so she's definitely not someone that the Jews would recognize as an individual who is traditionally and ritualistically pure from the Jewish culture. Because she doesn't have that same standard of purity, the disciples are uncomfortable around her. This is true of a lot of instances in the Bible. There is a lot of racial tension between the Jewish individuals and the various Gentile people groups that surround Israel. And so any one of these three interpretations could be true. The disciples could have been uncomfortable with her presence. They could have been bothered by her very ostentatious display of faith in the Lord, especially when they themselves potentially have struggled in the past in that area, or it could have absolutely been that they believed in the power of the Lord to heal this woman and to grant her request. This racial tension becomes even more important when we consider verse 24, when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is true. 
Jesus's primary mission at this point in Matthew and the Gospels in the Lord's redemptive plan was to the Jews slash the Israelites. And again, this creates kind of a racial tension um, between the people groups that were living there. But none of this deters this woman. Instead, she comes and she kneels before the Lord and says, Lord, help me. But even though Jesus himself says that his primary mission was to the house of Israel first, we read in John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So even though Jesus was sent in the beginning of his ministry to the Jewish people, the Gospel of John tells us that his own people would reject him. And this is absolutely true as we see in the story of the crucifixion. And even though his own people would reject him, that didn't nullify who he was and what his mission was on earth. Instead, John one says that the people who did receive him, no matter where they came from, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their position in society, they would be able to receive him and be given the right to be children of God. Even though Jesus tells her that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we know, reading all the way through the Gospels, that he would later, after his mission was fulfilled, he would extend his Holy Spirit into the Gentile population. We see crystal clear evidence of this in Acts chapter 10 when Peter, on a vision from the Lord, visits a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile individual. When Peter visits Cornelius, he says to him in verse 28, You know it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. Fundamentally, this section of text in Matthew shouldn't be interpreted as Jesus saying that he would not save anyone that was not a Jewish individual, but rather, again, this was him trying to see to what degree the woman's faith would truly persevere in this moment. And even despite this opposition, even despite being told that he wasn't sent for anyone except the house of Israel, she comes and kneels before him. This is significant because kneeling is a sign of recognition of both kingship and power. This action of kneeling is really pretty radical because essentially what she's doing as a Canaanite woman and technically an enemy of the Jewish people, she's still choosing to recognize Jesus as a king and as her authority. So in this moment when she's kneeling before him, she is honoring him regardless of the fact that the racial tension between the two of them puts them on very diametrically opposed sides of a feud that is centuries old. This is radical for someone of her position in life in the society, someone who's on the fringe, someone who's an outsider, an outcast to come recognizing fully that there is history, there is racial contention between her population and the population of Jesus. But she kneels anyway because she knows who she is and she's not willing to let any outside cultural social factors deter her from pressing in to the Lord. I'm going to finish reading this passage. Picking up in verse 26, he answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. 
In verse 26, we see Jesus call this woman a dog. Now, in this time, Gentiles were commonly called dogs, but this term was used in the derogatory sense. It was a slander. It was an insult to the Gentile people from the Jewish individuals. And so in this moment, Jesus is recognizing verbally her position as a Gentile and his position as a Jew. He uses the common language, but not necessarily in a way that we would expect. If you translate this back to the original Greek, Jesus isn't using the form of the word that would be derogatory. He essentially says, little dogs. In Greek, diminutives are characteristically affectionate. A diminutive is any word that reduces something in size. It makes something small. And so Jesus, in this moment, by calling her a little dog, is essentially using a very affectionate term. And so by Jesus calling her a little dog, he takes the sting out of the insult. We see further evidence of this in 1 John when John uses the words little children to encourage believers after or before or during their battle with some sort of sin in their life. So taken literally, Jesus was really saying when he said little dogs, he was really calling her a puppy. And if you think critically about it, puppies and children are very similar in terms of need and attention requirements. They're different, fundamentally different, but they're both incredibly loved in a household and they both have a distinct place in a home. This passage would have been radically different if Jesus had called her something like a raven or a crow, an animal that doesn't have a place or role in the home. But this language denotes that even if she's a dog, she still has a spot in the home. She still has a place in the kingdom of God. Yet, even though there's so much kindness in what Jesus is saying in this moment, the initial read of this passage is not comfortable. Watching Jesus call this woman a dog has kind of a shock factor to it. It really does take you back for a few moments. And when I was reading this, it came to my mind how most of us would get immediately offended at this type of language, at this type of treatment. We would be very, we would feel very slighted in this day and age if we were handled with this type of language. But this woman isn't. She's not slighted by this. And she's willing to take whatever the Jews don't want. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she said, yet even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In this moment, she's saying to Jesus, all right, I'm a dog. I'll take it. I'll happily be a dog if it means I can get a crumb from my master's table. And I want to encourage all of us to have that same kind of model attitude. She recognizes that even being close to the father, even just being in proximity to the table, no matter her position at it, is something worth pursuing. After Jesus places all of these stumbling blocks in her road to him, and after she overcomes every single one of them, Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. And he does exactly what we know him to be able to do. Jesus in this moment extends to this woman exactly what she wants. She requested a crumb from the Lord's table and he provides a crumb. But I don't want us to miss the power in one teeny tiny crumb from the Lord's hand. And so I'm gonna go through six ways that Jesus shows his power through this crumb. The first way is Jesus breaks down racial barriers. 
He didn't have to do this. He told her very clearly that his mission was to the house of Israel first and foremost, but he saw her as a human and as a mother struggling in the fight for her child. He didn't do this because he knew people were going to be watching, that he knew it was going to be recorded in the Bible. He did this out of the fundamental goodness of who he is and on the basis of his character, because he loves everyone, regardless of if they're Canaanite, a woman, or a foreigner. And so in this moment, he breaks down the racial barriers that divide the Gentiles and the Jews by healing her daughter and bringing this miracle into her life. Number two, he challenged even further than he already has in his ministry to this point, the religious teachings of the Pharisees. I'm going to very quickly read Matthew 15 verses 10 through 20 to make this point. It says, Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, Explain us this parable. Jesus says, Do you still lack understanding? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. That was a lot, but if you've ever read the Levitical law, if you've ever read Leviticus, you recognize that there's a lot of interesting food rules that the Lord had laid out for the Israelites. These rules were in place for the Israelites as a way to keep them ceremonially clean as a people group and so there were a lot of things that they could not eat they had specific hand washing rituals that would they were required to follow to mark themselves as the pure and the set aside people of god but this woman a gentile she didn't follow that law and jesus encounter with her proves his point that what comes out of the mouth is the defiling agent not what goes in this woman clearly demonstrates through her words and through her actions that she has great faith in Jesus. Her faith in Jesus can be contrasted to the Pharisees who didn't believe in him at all. Yet instead, they were focused on washing their hands and eating foods that were ceremonially clean. And this story shows that Jesus is not necessarily concerned with the ceremonial and the ritualistic version of clean. He's concerned with the cleanliness on the inside of our heart and the purity that results from faith in him. My challenge to you is to think very critically about how our words reflect our heart. Verse 18 says very clearly, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And so this week, take some time to observe what you say, the vocabulary you use, the word choice selections that you make, things that you say to your friends versus things that you say to other people in your life, and examine how your words and how you're speaking is reflecting the state of your heart. If it does, excellent. But if you feel like that's not a clear representation of who you are, then I would say that it would be okay to note that and to begin making changes in the way that you speak. The third way that Jesus shows his power through this crumb is he sets a precedent for the disciples' Gentile ministry. I briefly mentioned earlier Acts chapter 10 verses 17 through 34 when 
Peter goes and he meets with a man named Cornelius. This demonstrates to us that the disciples were later going to spread out and they were going to move into the Gentile areas to preach the gospel. And this encounter with this woman sets the example for them on how they should love other people that are not within their own racial group and how they should pursue the goodness of the gospel to the end of the earth no matter who the audience is. The fourth way that Jesus shows his power through this crumb is he heals a demon-possessed girl. The Bible is so cool. I'm presenting this text from a more macro perspective on Jesus's power in this moment, but you can absolutely read this passage from a more targeted perspective that zeroes in on the glorious fact that this woman's daughter is healed from a demon. When the woman comes to Jesus, she says, Lord, help me. And she petitions for her daughter as if it was her own infliction that she was asking for relief from. This is an incredible model for us on how we should petition for others important to us in our life and petition for them as if it were ourselves that we were asking for. I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, if I didn't highlight the redemptive power of the Lord and his ability to heal us from various ailments that befall us during this daily life. And the Lord is still able, he's still able to do this miracle even in this world now. And so if you or someone that you know is struggling with a demon, maybe that is depression or anxiety, or maybe that's something else entirely, the Lord is able to heal. The fifth way that Jesus shows his power through this small action for this woman is he awards this woman a place in the kingdom and he gives her the highest compliment in the entire New Testament. Nobody else receives such a high piece of praise. Others come close, like the centurion, but nobody receives this level. Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. Great faith can be found in unexpected places. And so just because you are not a direct minister does not mean that you can't have a faith such as this woman's. Her faith, while marked by many things, was characterized by her perseverance. Jesus tossed out stumbling block after stumbling block, and she jumped them all because she was desperate to be close to the Lord no matter what. She was desperate to experience his healing and his redemption. And so even if you are not an individual who believes that capacity in life, your role in life is to do ministry work and is to do something directly related to the furthering of the kingdom, know that your faith can still be something that is marvelous and something that sets the example for the people that are around you. And finally, this crumb displayed the overflowing abundance of the Lord's power. The son of David has enough power to serve the house of Israel and he has enough left over to meet her need. He told her, I'm only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she recognized, yeah, but I can still have a piece of that. I can still get a little bit. In the same way, the Lord has enough power to preside over the earth being omniscient and omnipresent as well as save us from our sins and yet he has enough power left over to help us and to provide for us in our daily lives. Y'all, we serve a big God. I'm here today to tell you that God is big. He is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, 
and he is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think according to the power that works in us. While I was reading this and preparing for this podcast, it made me think a lot about my dog. I have a dog, his name is Jack, and he is an Australian shepherd, and he is a hurricane, truly. He's definitely one of those dogs that is always running around and is never sitting still and he is really cute and he never wants to be away from us and so he always has to be where someone in our family is and you know laying on our feet or sitting by our side or something and one of the things that jack is exceptionally good at is begging and he will always come and he will sit at the end of the dining room table and he'll sit and he'll wait and he'll wait and he'll wait And he does this because he knows that we have a habit, we have a track record of giving him food. My dad one time told me that he has the first and the last bite for Jack. And Jack knows that if he sits at the edge of the table, he can get a crumb from one of us. It's inevitable. Even if we say, Jack, lie down, Jack, go away. He knows if he stays there, he'll get something. But it doesn't always happen instantly. It might take the entire duration of our meal for us to give Jack what we have left over. And so I want us to be encouraged by the idea that crumbs might not fall immediately. We see a lot of evidence of this in this passage when this woman is asking and asking and asking and Jesus doesn't immediately distribute them. He holds them back for a little while. He tests her faith and then he delivers her this work because of her great faith. And so our crumb might not fall immediately. What we're asking of the Lord might not arrive to us in the instance that we ask for it. But the Lord has them. The Lord has an abundant overflow of power and he has crumbs available to all of us. And the final thing I want to leave you guys with is we need to be satisfied with crumbs. Even the smallest actions of the Lord show that he is near to us as evidence clearly in this passage. I think one of the reasons this passage is so profound is it forces us to come to the realization that even small actions of God are profound demonstrations of his power. In context with the idea that God has an infinite amount of power, him healing this woman probably didn't take much of it. It was probably a very small movement on his part, but to this woman and to us reading it, We get to revel in the glory of the Lord, even through this tiny action, even through this one singular crumb. Don't miss it, guys. Even small actions of God are massive actions for us as humans. And so I want to encourage all of us today to assume the role of a little dog as a puppy and to sit patiently, attentively waiting at the end of the master's table for a crumb to fall and to know that whatever that crumb looks like is full of power and blessing and love from our Heavenly Father. That's all I have for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed this message. If you did, I would really love to hear from you. And until next time, remain faithful. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would be grateful if you subscribe to the show so you can be notified when new episodes are released. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find our Instagram page at Remain Faithful Podcast, or you can head over to our website at remainfaithful.org.